Hello, and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is season four, episode 11, with a sense of agency, with Daryl Grant. We owe it to ourselves to inform ourselves. Every great idea carries within it the seeds of its own demise, right? As everything sort of is being disrupted, what if we were to build new things together? Daryl Grant is a composer, professor of music, entrepreneur, and advocate for the arts. Central to his music is a sense of purpose and agency, connection to the community. Through eight albums as a band leader, numerous recordings as a sideman, and a growing body of compositions, and two decades of service as an educator and leader in the arts. His multifaceted creative projects and innovative initiatives reflect his belief in the extraordinary power of art to communicate, inspire, provoke, inform, and move others to transform the future of their societies and themselves. He was inducted into the Oregon Jazz Hall of Fame in 2008. He spoke to us about the love of jazz, the mythology of Portland as a place, culture, and a site of gentrification, and how he's interested in understanding place, helping people imagine things, helping people move forward with things, and and how to dissolve myths, especially the myth of artists not being valuable or leaders or important in civic spaces. I so loved what he said about believing in our own capacity to function at the highest level. He's a huge inspiration for me, and I hope he will be for you as well. Here's Daryl. I am a jazz pianist and composer living in Portland. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and grew up in Lakewood, Colorado, which is a, a suburb of Denver. And uh, I was classically trained. I started playing piano when I was seven years old, but I had a love of jazz from a really early age. Started playing in jazz bands in grade school and um, just loved improvising and and was really um, inspired by that. So I sort of came up with a traditional classical music education and when it was time to go to college, um, decided that I would pursue my uh, luck at going to a conservatory and I uh, I was accepted to the Eastman School of Music on a scholarship, so I went there for for four years and did my undergraduate in classical piano. And after that, kind of decided that I wanted to go back to following my love of jazz. So I did a master's degree in jazz piano at the University of Miami for two years. And then after that, I moved to New York City. And uh, I lived in New York for 10 years from 1986 to 1996, which was really kind of a golden age um, a resurgence of a renaissance of jazz in that in that way and so um so i got to perform with you know incredible musicians i played with betty carter and i was in her trio i worked with tony williams and roy haynes and you know it was also you know all these young african-american musicians were really making music i guess they would probably now refer that to that as the young lions period of jazz history um and so you know young 
the young Marsalises and people like Roy Hargrove and Joshua Redman and Brian Blade and all these, you know, all these people that were getting started. And it was a really amazing community. But I was, I really had a lot of diverse musical interests. So I wound up playing in, you know, the rock community as well. And doing gigs at CBGB's, playing for tap dancers. I did a lot of touring with a company called the American Tap Dance Orchestra and got to play with Savion Glover and Gregory Hines and people like that. And But I was really, you know, I mean, I loved the life of New York, but I, I really wanted to write my own music. I had always sort of been, that had always been my sort of thought about what I would do. And so I started bands in New York and um, I got signed to a major label like really early after a couple of years in town and did a record with a band I had called Current Events and uh, and then promptly got dropped from the major label <laughs> and um, but then uh, started doing more sort of straight ahead jazz records and and had um, had some success there you know with my quartet and quintet records and and uh, after about 10 years in New York I was going to get married and but also I, I felt like I had done my time in New York, I wanted to sort of find something, something else, like more sense of a community, more stable life, less, you know, obligation to travel. And so I kind of fell into this position in, in Portland. It's um, kind of crazy story. I was actually touring and I had, um, I had given up my apartment in New York and I was commuting back and forth to Toronto because my then girlfriend, now wife, was living in Toronto. And so I was kind of working in the scene up there and, you know, living in a squat in New York, like a place where like you know, 25 of us artists, musicians, people had keys to this place. And we'd like, this guy would keep us on the list and we were in town, we'd stay there. And it was cool. It was in Hell's Kitchen. It was dangerous. It was crazy, but it was like a great, you know, it was the way to hang in New York. And so after a tour, um, I got back to New York and I saw in my post office box, um, this letter, affirmative action letter from Portland State, because I had come out a year earlier to visit with um, my friend Alan Jones, who great drummer Alan Jones, who I knew from New York, and and um, uh, my wife and I, then my girlfriend came out to visit him, just sort of looking for possibilities outside of New York, and I just fell in love with Portland. And I, in my time here, somebody had mentioned that. Andrew Hill, who was teaching here, wasn't going to be teaching. You know, he was going to be moving back to New York, and I should send him my resume. So I, I sent him my resume and a CD, and he entered into the entered it into the job search at PSU without my knowledge. And so the affirmative action letter was the first sign I'd had that there was even a job available. And so I immediately got on the phone, and it's like, well, I'm I am interested in this position. What what is it? <laughs> and uh, long story short, I I wound up uh, doing interview and coming out here and. And, uh, and getting this position on, on the faculty of PSU. And that was 1996. Um, so I started in January of 1997, uh, teaching at Portland State in the jazz department and have sort of made my life and work here in Portland ever since. Well, it's interesting. I think that you know, you're much more aware of the changes in a place when you are away for a long time and you come back because the in, the incremental changes, you don't see any of those. You just see the end result. So I'm absolutely sure that Portland is a completely different city. I mean, when I came, the Hawth Hawthorne was the hip, like new place. Like the Pearl was already like, you know, yeah, that was like yuppified and gentrified. and But the Hawthorne 
was the first, like, so that was before Mississippi or before um, Albina, Alberta, before any of that. And so, um, yeah, it was a much smaller place. Um, and I think I was, you know, coming from New York. I mean, it was just like, this is a town, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, you know, I mean, the potential was there. It was before the food scene had really got rolling and, you know, the craft brewing scene was there. The coffee thing was totally happening. I was like, I just sort of fell in love with coffee moving here. But the thing I, I really loved, I think that has, well, I don't know if it's still here because I've been here you know, so long, but there was this sort of community, communal ethos here that was really cool. I mean, you know, New York being so large, it had a lot of different scenes and there weren't, there wasn't a lot of crossover between the, the artistic scenes. I mean, if you were, you know, if you were a swaying jazz player, you played in that scene. If you were a Brooklyn cat, you played with the Brooklyn cats. If you were a downtowner and it wasn't, and here it was so small musically that I remember being struck by seeing musicians who stylistically in New York would never have played in the same band. And they were and the music that they made because of that sort of interchange of ideas and styles was really powerful. And I just I really love that. And I loved the proximity to, you know, decision makers. I mean, you know, there's there really aren't there's really like maybe three degrees of separation here in Portland instead of like six. So anybody that you want to meet, you're probably going to meet them. And so I think that 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 was really an upside. But I think the thing is it's really cool to have that sort of provincial and small town vibe when you're small, but Portland is definitely a city now. And I think that um, just like, you know, individuals have to grow as they mature and take on more responsibility, I think places also have to, to grow and change. And so I think, you know, some of what we're seeing now is, is this, those growing pains of having to address things that, you know, that weren't addressed um, when Portland was a smaller, um, a smaller place. The, one of the things that I've, I'm really coming to see and, and believe is that, you know, everything has two sides, right? Every great idea carries with it, within it the seeds of its own demise, right? And so I think that this idea that Portland is so small and familiar um, sort of masked um, a comfort with not changing, right? So a lot of the work that I have gravitated to doing in my time here has really been about understanding place, um, you know, and so when I wrote this piece, The Territory, My Sweet, The Territory back in 2012, um, I really got a chance to look at the mythology around Portland. And I think that small townness in a way was a, was a mask um, was a was a sort of mythology that hid kind of some of the underside that we're seeing right now, like this sort of really heinous prevalent racism um, and you know the found the foundation of the city and the state, you know, and now we're starting to sort of uncover that dark history and we can't we can't just be a happy family anymore. It's like we start to realize, oh, okay, that was never actually true. Um, and because we, it wasn't taking into account all of the people that were ex excluded from that narrative. And now we're sort of looking at having to, to change that. So it was great, it's great, the sort of proximity and you know, um, community feel is great, but the flip side of it is this exclusivity and this sort of discrimination and, and uh, 
in inequity that it was masking. So we have to sort of be willing to accept both um, and then see where we want to go now. So for the past um, three years, I was working, I have been working on uh, an opera. Um, I was approached by Third Angle New Music. And I can't even remember now, 2017, we started talking about this, 2016, I don't know, about doing a project and sort of evolved into this idea of doing a jazz chamber opera over great resistance on my part. Um, but eventually I kind of, the idea just sort of grabbed me and I, I couldn't let go of it. What would it mean to write a, a jazz inspired, um, you know, chamber opera? And and the, the subject matter was um, really, again, about place, about, um, but also about culture and um, about gentrification and in particular the displacement of Portland's black community in Albina. And um, so that process has really consumed, I would say, the majority of the past two or three years. I mean, I've done some other really cool projects. I got to write a score for a documentary for OVB called Jazz Town and, um, you know, did a lot of interesting performing but the opera has really been the the predominant project and then a month before well actually a couple weeks before we were supposed to start rehearsals uh, COVID happened and so the opera has was um, postponed for a year so it's actually going to be in April 2021 and so I mean you know it's a drag it's really I'm really glad that it's going to happen and it also means that I can keep working on it <laughs> it's like can make it better but anyway that's that's a, a big project um that that uh that I have been working on and and I was I mean I was really surprised and delighted recently to be uh selected um as one of the um uh governor's arts awards recipients for 2020 so that that was a, I mean, that's not like a project, but it's still um, a really wonderful uh, sort of recognition of the of the work and appreciation of the work that I've done. And, you know, I just feel really honored to be in that, in that company and also thinking about, well, what does that, you know, what does that mean um, for me as an artist? How do I sort of live up to the responsibility of of sort of being in that in that company of artists who've been recognized as doing significant work as far as you know Oregon and Oregonians, um, and then you know during the COVID time, like the the after COVID time, I've really just been trying to do inspiring, inspired and inspiring collaborative projects that that I hope will encourage people to, you know, imagine. A, a better future than, you know, a better future than, than we're in now and also a better future than, you know, than alternatives to where we came from, you know, what happened before COVID. I, I just feel like this is such an incredible, I mean, it's such an incredibly wrenching and challenging time of upheaval, but the possibility of rebuilding that, you know, that both the pandemic and then, well, the pandemic of COVID and then the, the sort of pandemic of racial upheaval that we're sort of like having to face just allows so many possibilities. So, um, so I've been really trying to think about how I can lend my artistic voice to helping people imagine um, new 
and more positive possibilities. So I wrote a, I, I did a virtual video at the beginning of um, this whole thing of, uh, of a song from my Ruby Bridges suite um, and put that out online. And that was really amazing collaborative projects with you know, great musicians and a choir. And, and we put that out. And then I was involved in um, a musical, a, a Zoom musical that Ezra Weiss put together, um, a musical review. So that was a really fun thing to do and something I hadn't done. So writing an original song for that. And I just finished a video of a song that I wrote um, a year ago, actually, called Take Flight, and um, and working on a fundraising project um, around the release of that song and video. And it was amazing collaboration with a muralist, um, Alex Chu, and an incredible filmmaker, Adolfo Cantu Villarreal. And um, so lots of lots of, of ways to um, kind of add my voice to, and, you know, my creativity to helping people move forward. One of the things that I'm really that I'm really excited about in my teaching is that for the past three years, a colleague of mine, Suzanne Severia, and I have been working on this initiative called the Artist to Citizen Initiative. And it really basically started as a conversation between us one day about like, well, you know, when when students come to Portland State to study music as freshmen, we put them in music theory 101, we put them in sightseeing ear training, we develop their musicianship from the beginning. What would happen if we tried to develop their sense of agency from day one in the same at the same core level that we try and develop their master their mastery like what kind of artists would we graduate if we did that so that was kind of the question that drew us into this work as artist assistant and it's really an exploration of the arts and activism interdisciplinary exploration of the arts and, and activism and i really i the thing that i that I'm passionate about is um, I want artists, you know, this whole myth that, well, I mean, there's so many myths about artists. It's like, oh, you know, they're irresponsible or they're self-centered or selfish. And, you know, I mean, this is, this is mythology, which, you know, is not universal. It's a stereotype. And, and it's also, you know, it's a mythology that's co-opted for profit, right? Because, you know, by highlighting the sides of uh, the sides, the sort of less social, antisocial sides of the creative process that most people are tamp have tamped down, it makes it more, it makes it more attractive, but it, but it's not true, right? I mean, it's like, when I think of like the artist, and when I think of like Esperanza Spaulding or Billy Childs or Jerry Allen or Terry Lynn Carrington or Bobby McFerrin, it's like, give me a break. These are these are genius people. These are like incredibly socially responsible people. These are leaders, and so for me, like I remember when I heard um, that uh, Vaclav Havel, who's the you know the Czech playwright, became like the leader of the Czech Republic. I was like, wait, you you they elected a playwright to lead a country, and then I was like. Well, to hell with artists not being able to change the world. It's like we can, we can, we can lead the world. So, part of my goal in this artist as citizen is to Im imbue these young musicians with a sense of their agency. If they they are totally capable of leading and making change, and by bringing their artistic perspective and their artistic gifts to all kinds of conversations, like the world needs them. The world needs their voices, not just when they have instruments in their hands or when they're painting. The world needs the 
needs their voices when they're trying to figure out how to set up social systems and when they're trying to figure out how to build schools and when they're trying to figure out how to solve racism. I mean, we as creative people have a huge role to play in guiding those conversations. And we, are, and we owe it to ourselves to inform ourselves and to believe in our capacity to function at the highest level so that we can carry out our role in doing that. You know, if we're if we're not able to believe that we're worthy of being in the room, we're not going to be able to provide the you know, the information and the and the perspectives um, that are needed. From from the artistic standpoint, and this is something that I'm trying to um, to to think about and sort of come to terms with myself is like the flip side of artists sort of have, of that mythology as artists is that we get to think that we're special like we're somehow unique and that and that we're sort of we privilege our art making over the sort of work that needs to be done to keep the society running right and so i mean i love i i do think it's important that artists do their art um you know i mean it's like but it's like you kind of i feel like you, we also have to do our art because of what we're in service of because of our role in the in the community or in the society. And I always imagine like in primitive cultures, like, you know, did the griot like not have to milk his goats? Like did did because they were the griot, did they just get to sit and like play the, you know, play the Cora all day and no they never had to milk a goat or they never had I mean it's like what what is it that makes us think that because we that because we do our art we get we get excused from participation by having other roles in the culture and so I think that that that's a that's a place of privilege that I as an artist need to really consider because the strength that I gather and I mean this my real strength is in my connection with the people in my community right and this is what this is what the pandemic is really showing right it's like you know we were sort of cruising on the top doing our art traveling around the world playing music doing all this and all that stopped and now we are reliant on sort of what we can do locally, like what our core audience is, the connections, the really tight connections we have. So people are playing, you know, Monday night streaming concerts, right? And getting tips. And the people that come in week after week to do that are the people that they've really touched, right? The people that are part of their community that for whom their 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 contributions, their artistic contributions are a vital part of their lives to the point where they will seek them out online and come and watch them play in their kitchen or in their bedroom on a, on a, on a weeknight and send in $15 and send in, you know, $30 like that, that type of connection. And that, that to me is, I mean, in a way it's like, it brings us down to the real work. Like it brings, it, it, it strikes off all the glamour. Right. And it's like the real work is, can I heal these people? week in, week out, day in, day out? Like, can I give them something that that changes their life, that becomes essential to their life? Um, not just like on a huge stage with lots of spotlights and all that stuff, but, you know, really just on a, on a daily basis. And I, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to sound like, uh, I'm, I mean, I, I'm like, I don't have a place to criticize people, um, but I do feel like, um, like that's something that we um, that we need to really consider as artists, um, 
you know, are we, how do we, how do we sort of use all of the, how do we sort of put our shoulder to the wheel in many different ways and connect in a, in a manner of service um, that may or may not involve us having instruments in our hands or, or not. We can do these things and we can sort of set these policies and try and sort of legislate these things, but I'm not quite sure unless we sort of figure out a way to shift the imperatives of capitalism, like of market capitalism, that we're going to be able to resist, I mean, the obvious sort of co-opting of these things in a way that accretes resources in the hands of those who have already have resources. I mean, I just think it just depends on the way that you measure wealth and sort of how you, I don't know what the what the overall intention is. I'm I'm involved in a in a project in my neighborhood because um, I live in Lair Hill um, or South Portland now. But um, and so there there's all this money. There's some ODOT money to um, to take out like all the on ramps to the Ross Island Bridge. Um, and so in building a light rail in through Southwest Portland, there's some money to sort of do this traffic change of the traffic pattern. And what that means is that there's parcels, there's some parcels that are now available to be developed, the city owns, um, but there's, and there's also a bunch of property that gets um, opened up as they change the street get, grid and they take out all the sort of loops and highway stuff um, that goes under the Ross Island Bridge and make streets out of it. Um, and so um, Front Avenue, which is you know near where I live, becomes um, more. It becomes not a sort of um, automobile throughway. Um, it becomes more of like a, a pedestrian-friendly block. So that's you know that's a development opportunity, right? So I'm in I'm among a group of citizens that are talking to um, you know um, ODOT and uh, uh, Prosper Portland about okay how do we how do we develop this site or how do we move forward in this in this moment in a way that is equitable that honors you know and sort of recognizes past inequities and racism and tries not to do the same stuff again like how do we do that so what do we build what kind of program do we put in there what kind of considerations do we look at and so it's really interesting to me i mean i'm i'm really loving it. i mean i'm urban planning is sort of like a i don't know it's like a hobby it's like what i probably would have loved to do if i didn't do you know jazz music um but mostly it's just like i love how people make decisions and and figure out how to you know sort of find agency and invest for happiness so it's like it's just an interesting problem to solve um and i'm really interested in in sort of thinking about well what what does it mean to honor the the past what does it mean and then what does it mean to to create a neighborhood that is inviting to different people, like not just the homeowners. I mean, not when I when I bought my house, it wasn't, but the majority of Portland can't afford to live in the neighborhood I live in now, which is insane to me because I mean, I was like a, you know, a prof jazz professor at a university. And I just, at that one time, the time we, we just were lucky to buy this house 20 years ago when this neighborhood was not nearly what it is now. But most of Portland could not afford to buy a home. So why, so when we're creating an, a, a sort of changing the neighborhood, do we, are we really looking to add value for the people that live there? Are we welcome, are we looking to make it a welcoming place for people that, you know, that used to live there? It's like, you know, because little did I know that there was a black community in South Portland 
you know, long ago, little, little did I know that there was a Latino enclave, that this was a real, I mean, I knew it was an immigrant neighborhood way back, um, but I didn't know the extent to which people of color live there. And and that that history is nowhere to be found. It's like, so we need to, we need to, what happens if we highlight that history? What if we bring that out? And what if we try to find a way to make this an inviting and welcoming place for people who don't actually live there? But who we want to who we want to use this neighborhood to occupy this you know neighborhood and and to feel like they belong in this neighborhood. I just had this really great conversation with um, Walida Imarisha, who is. Um, a writer and an activist and, you know, um, and a Portlander. And her whole thing is like Afrofuturism is like um, figuring, using, using fiction and science fiction in particular to imagine the future that we want to create and then living into it. So we had some great conversations about that. And I also have this um, person, there's a person named Bill Sharp, whose reading I've been doing. He um, originally wrote a a piece that I've used in my teaching for years, and it's called The Economies of Life. And he is a member of the International Futures Forum, which is based in Scotland. So I've been reading their stuff for like, you know, five years as well. And, and um, they're really invested in creating frameworks in which to really consider the far future. Like, so I feel like between those two, those two possibilities, the two models, like sort of science fiction of sort of creating, casting ourselves into the future we want to see. And then the IFF's version of like, you know, okay, let's, let's create a framework where, where we can bring the, fu- the, the future that we want into the plane of the present and talk about it equally, like so that we can start to aim the disruptions that we support at creating that new future we want, as opposed to just being co-opted by the existing paradigm. So, um, so I've been thinking about this a lot. And, you know, it's, I think, I'm trying to train my mind to move away from thinking of these as wishful thinking, or utopian ideas, and really think about, okay, well, what would I like to see? And so I think, you know, one of the ideas that I'm really interested in thinking more about is this idea of ecosystems and figuring out a way to um, create economies other than the economy of money. Because I think one of the challenges for us as artists is that, you know, we have this art which exists um, in an ecosystem of ideas and gift and generosity and creativity. And then to make a living, we have to figure out how to squeeze it into the rules and sort of, you know, ways of function of the money economy. And those are compl- those are very, very different, right? And so we, you know, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, is there a way that we can make it work in, advert- in reverse where we take the sort of resources that are churning in the money economy and we start to deflect them into this sort of arts economy or this sort of the ecosystem that sort of revolves around those values. Um, and I think so some of the sharing things that we do um, and collaborative things that we do and cross-disciplinary partnerships that we do 
are are ways to do that. I really love this idea that I can't remember the guy's name. I'll have to look it up. Who started this um, nonprofit that's rebuilding the houses of African Americans? I just thought, okay, there there it is, right? Somebody who's taken the idea of reparations, which is just this sort of pie in the sky thing that nobody knows to figure out, and he's figured out a way to bring it down to reality, where it's just like, I'll take the money, I'll find people, and we will actually add value to these homes and allow African-Americans to accrue value and to benefit from the value of their homes. And it's like, okay, so that's that's a real life version. So imagine if that were to go on for 20 years. So I, I'm just kind of imagining that, that type of equity being more common. I'm also really interested in this idea of land trusts. And is there a way that we can sort of shift the ownership of property such that um, it, it becomes more equitable? And so I've been looking into like the Albany Land Trust and these historic land trusts where the people come together and they buy the land and people own their homes, but they don't own the land. The land stays in the trust. And so um, I don't know. I just wonder if there's a way, if there are ways that we can take ideas like that and expand upon them here in Portland or in Oregon. Um, and that would make something look really, really different. Um, make things look really different than they are right now. Please take a listen to Daryl's incredible work and follow his newest project on his website at darylgrant.com. That's D-A-R-R-E-L-L-G-R-A-N-T.com. This episode was sponsored by the Oregon Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, the Kenton Action Plan, North Portland Community Works, and the Oregon Cultural Trust. Thank you so much for your sponsorship. The episode was written and produced by me, Joni Whitworth, and edited by Matt Larimer. The music for this episode was written and produced by Standing On End. Check them out at standingonend.bandcamp.com or on Instagram at standingonend. If you have any questions or feedback about the show, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out at futureprairie.com or on social media at futureprairie. Thanks so much. <laughs>